Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. So a few weeks ago, we did this live poll during our Sunday gathering. We all here for that? Raise your hand if you're here when we did the live poll. Okay. So we did this live poll to basically choose what spiritual disciplines you all wanted to talk about during this Wholehearted Practices series. I had like uh, 15 of them or something on there, and you kind of just selected like your top five, and, and we chose like that. Now, I think I know our church family pretty well. Here at Restore, we are kind of purposefully unique in a number of different ways, but one of the most significant is just how many of us have been through some kind of difficult church experiences or faith experiences in the past. So based on that, based on the number of folks that have gone through things like that, I thought I had a pretty good idea of how we would vote, right? Like I thought prayer and Bible study would be really high on the list, since some of us feel kind of caught in between really wanting to do those things, but struggling to know how and why. I figured those would be pretty high, and sure enough, they were the top two answers, or two of the top answers. Prayer was actually number one. We covered it last week. And then there were others that I figured wouldn't get as much traction, like uh, submission. Yeah, that one was at the bottom, the very bottom vote getter, submission. But then there was one that I was like completely wrong about. There was one that I thought would be at the bottom that ended up number two overall. Can anybody guess what that was? Confession. Nice. Oh, that makes sense. It was a test and you passed, Ashley. Great work. Confession. Now, this is a complex topic. We could easily spend two weeks talking about it, but I'm not Usher, so there will be no confessions part two. Thank you, hold your applause, please, please, please. Gotta let it burn. All right. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna recover from that. Um. Before we go any further, I want to remind us all of this foundational truth that we've been talking about throughout this year of healing and wholeness since we started back in August, and that is this. God is love, and we are God's beloved. God is love, and we are God's beloved. We just sang about that. Scripture speaks about that all throughout its pages. These two identities form the foundation of the Christian faith. It is who God is and it is who we are. God is love and we are God's beloved. Now this is really important because we pursue healing and wholeness from the love and acceptance God provides, not for the love and acceptance we hope God will provide someday. Does that make sense? That's an important distinction. You see, God loves us like here and now, not some idealized version of us that may or may not show up in the future. God loves us fully as we sit here today and desires to see each of us experience abundance of life that Jesus promises. But as we talked about during the fall, there are these things that get in the way of us experiencing the healing, wholeness, and fullness of life that Jesus desires for us all. And scripture actually puts these things under the broad umbrella of something called sin. 
Now, I know that for some of us, that word can be a little triggering. It's often been maybe weaponized in an unhealthy way against us or people that we love. And that's why back in the fall, we did a whole series, a four-week series on what sin is, both personal and systemic sin, and how we push back against it. Part of this series was kind of giving us a better working definition of sin so that we can understand it in healthy and Christ-like ways. And here it is. In short, sin is anything that prevents us from experiencing the healing, wholeness, and fullness of life that Jesus desires for all people. Does that make sense? If Jesus, when he came and they asked him why, he said, John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That is Jesus' purpose, hope, goal for all of us. Sin is anything that gets in the way of that. Does that make sense? And it can be things that um, we do to ourselves, that we do to others, that others do to us, or things that exist in systems and structures inside of our world. Now, one of the most common ways that sin has been weaponized is through the phrase, God hates sin. Because a lot of times that's used in a way to make it seem like God hates us when we sin, right? But my friends, that could not be further from the truth. God doesn't hate sin because God is some legalist holding every human to an impossible moral standard or because God flies off the handle in anger anytime we do something wrong. No, that's not it at all. I believe God hates sin because sin hurts his kids. God hates sin because sin hurts us. It gets in the way of what Jesus desires for us all, flourishing and fullness. I love the way Jonathan Merritt says it. He said, God hates sin, not because God is an angry rule maker, but because God loves us without constraint. And God wants each of us to live the abundant life. God wants peace for us. God wants shalom for us. God wants us to flourish. He wants us to recognize the image of God in others and support their flourishing. And any force that resists the abundant life is called sin. And this is a force to which God stands opposed. So whether it's chosen by us or inflicted upon us by an outside force, sin prevents flourishing. And since God wants all of us to experience fullness and flourishing, God hates anything that gets in the way of that. God stands opposed to it. But see, here's the cool part. Thankfully, our God is not the kind of God who sees something hurting us and just sits back, does nothing, or says they deserve it. They brought that on themselves. Now, our God didn't just look down on us in pity. Our God came to us in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the divine with skin on, came and made his home with us so that he could offer us freedom and forgiveness and fullness of life to everyone who wants it. I love how Paul says it to one of the, his letters in the, to the early church. He said, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Jesus Christ. God saved you by his grace when you believe, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Paul is saying that because God loves us so much and because God couldn't bear to watch us dying under the weight of sin, God put on flesh as Jesus and came to bring us life and grace and kindness and salvation. 
Through Christ, we can experience freedom and forgiveness from sin, from anything that gets in the way of our flourishing. But at this point, the question is always how? How do we do that? And it's usually met with an answer about finally being set free from the things that hurt us and weigh us down someday in heaven. And I'm not saying that's not good, and I'm not saying it's not hopeful, but I really don't think it fully captures what Jesus has in mind for all of us. You see, I think Jesus wants us all to experience freedom and forgiveness here and now. Like Jesus said, on earth as it is in heaven. So how do we do that? Well, one way is through all of these wholehearted practices that we've been talking about. These tools that God has given us in order to push back against the things that get in the way of our flourishing, push toward the things that help promote our flourishing, stay in an intimate, connected relationship with God and one another. These are the tools that God has given us as humans to do that. The one we're talking about today is confession. Now, quick show of hands, if you're comfortable sharing, how many of you have ever been to confession of some kind? A few, not many, a few. Okay, if you raised your hand, will you shout out what kind of church you grew up in? Catholic, great. Okay. <laughs> All Catholics for Church of Christ. All right, great. So listen, in my experience, similar to y'all, the act of confession is most associated with Catholicism. I was actually talking about this with our executive pastor, Lindsay Contreras, this week, since she grew up Catholic. And she told me that she started the practice of formal confession around fourth grade. That was about the time when most people did. And it was pretty straightforward. You were supposed to spend time kind of reflecting on your sins and then confess them to your priest. Then the priest gives practical advice on how to stop whatever sin you've confessed or prescribe some sort of penance. It could be spiritual things like 10 Hail Marys, or it could be something practical like apologizing to the person you sinned against or some combination of the two. But as Lindsay described her experience with confession, I realized even though I've been Protestant my entire life, I've done almost exactly the same things in like youth group and at church camp and even on Sunday mornings at churches that I grew up in. On the last night of Christian camps, there's often this call to come down to the altar and confess your sins, right? To one of the pastors, one of the leaders there. There's usually a time on youth retreats to do something similar. Even on a regular Sunday morning, many churches offer the chance to walk down an aisle and confess, or to the whole church, you can even confess in corporate confession settings. So you can do that. This happens all over the place. So even if you've never been in a confessional talking to a Catholic priest, if you have any background in church, chances are you've practiced some form of confession. You've talked about the things that you're struggling with, with a, a pastor, a friend, a confidant. But like anything else, confession can be used to hurt people. See, regardless of what kind of church you are in, pastors and priests alike have weaponized confession in order to manipulate and control, even abuse people. I know that's probably some of your stories. But I also have friends, both Protestant and Catholic, who found a lot of peace and healing in being able to talk with a trusted pastor or priest or friend about their sin struggles. I have the privilege of doing that with folks all the time. It's really beautiful. And I don't have any power to condemn or absolve, but I can create safe spaces for people to confess, offer advice when asked, speak the truth about God's relentless love for us, over people, 
A love that welcomes us in no matter who we are or what we've done, and a love that wants to transform us to experience this healing, wholeness, and fullness of life we've been talking about. But for as much as confession is talked about and practiced in modern church circles, it's, it's really not mentioned in Scripture very much. Just a few times, actually. I think four or five. So we're going to look at two of them this morning that I think give us a really beautiful example of maybe how confession was intended to be and maybe how we can actually use it to experience some of this healing and flourishing that we've been talking about. So the first one we're going to look at describes confession from us to God. It's 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, I included verse 9 in that. Mostly it's just verse 10 that talks about confession, but I think verse 9 is really important. Because if we claim to be without sin, if we claim that we've never done things to prevent our own flourishing or the flourishing of others or participated in systems and structures that do the same, we deceive ourselves, right? That's just not being honest. Now, notice we don't deceive God. God knows. (laughs) We deceive ourselves. And that's important because that self-deception is like, it's deadly, y'all. Because if we refuse to address the things we do or participate in that hurt ourselves and others, we will never experience that fullness of life that Jesus talks about. Not only that, we're going to get in the way of other people experiencing that. And that's not okay. I love how Bell Hooks talks about confession in her wonderful book called All About Love. She says, there is truth in the axiom, confession is good for the soul. It allows us to bear witness to our own trespasses, to those ways we miss the mark, a definition of the meaning of sinfulness. It is only as we recognize and confront the circumstances of our spiritual forgetfulness that we assume accountability. In communion with the divine spirit, we can claim space of accountability and renew our commitment to that transformation of spirit that opens the heart and prepares us to love. Confession is good for our souls. And I think this is true because real confession, it requires introspection. It causes us to have to take a hard look at who we are, what we're doing, things we're participating in. We want to be people who live and love like Jesus, right? That's why we're here. Not if that's correct. We want to be people like that. We want to be people who live and love like Jesus, who promote grace and joy and peace and kindness and hope in our lives and our communities and the world around us. This is who we want to be, but we don't always do that, right? This is not shameful, this is not embarrassing, this is true of us all. We fall short, we mess up. To put it biblically, we sin. We hurt ourselves, we hurt our neighbors, we get in the way of flourishing and freedom. I don't think there's a person listening right now who doesn't want to leave those sinful practices that hurt ourselves and others behind. We wanna do that. We wanna see sin eradicated in our world because sin hurts people. But depending on this kind of sin that we're struggling with, there are all kinds of strategies to do just that. But I'm telling you, it starts with honesty and introspection. We have to start there. 
As John said in that verse we read a few minutes ago, we can't be set free from sin if we keep trying to deceive ourselves and God and others. And I think that's one of the main purposes of confession. See, when we are introspective, we are honest, when we are forthright, that's when the healing can begin. We can't fix a problem if we don't acknowledge it. We can't move toward where we want to be if we don't tell the truth about where we are right now. We see this truth on display in the other reference to confession that we're going to look at briefly. It comes from Jesus' brother James, and it describes confession to each other. So we talked about confession to God. This describes confession to each other. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I love that. Authentic confession to God and each other promotes healing and wholeness and fullness of life. In Henry Nouwen's wonderful book called The Wounded Healer, he says it like this, a Christian community is therefore a healing community. Not because wounds are cured and pains are alleviated, but because wounds and pains become openings or occasion for a new vision. Mutual confession then becomes mutual deepening of hope. And sharing weaknesses becomes a reminder to one and all of the coming strength. That starts the healing process when we're honest with ourselves, with God, and each other. Now, all this, I think it seems pretty straightforward, right? We're supposed to be introspective, confess our sins to God and each other, which means that we're just honest about the things we've done that hurt ourselves and our neighbors. And when we do that, it seems like scripture, it seems like Jesus is saying that we begin to experience the healing and wholeness that he desires for us all. But if this is so straightforward, then why don't most of us practice confession? I don't, maybe you do. I'm not great at it, I'll be honest. It's hard. It's confusing sometimes. I don't know if I'm doing it right. You know? Why do some of us have bad experiences with it? I think it's because almost like everything else in Scripture... We've often taken a beautifully simple thing like confession and we've just added a ton of stuff to it. A ton of unnecessary, sometimes restrictive, sometimes harmful stuff. Some folks would say to experience true confession, you need a priest to be there. Some folks would say you have to have a pastor. Some folks would say your Catholic confessions don't count. Some would say your Protestant ones don't. Some would say if you want to confess the right way, you need to kneel at an altar. Others would say you need to sit in a prayer closet. Still others walk down an aisle. Still others open the door to a confessional booth. Some even say that you need to keep a list of every single sin and confess them all one by one if you want to be really sure that you've done confession correctly. Now, I'm not even saying all those things are inherently bad. Some of them, I think, can even be helpful, but they are absolutely not necessary. Because I think what confession requires above everything else is not a priest or a pastor, it's not an altar or an aisle or a perfect accounting of every sin. Healthy confession requires honesty. Honesty. We just have to be real and authentic and vulnerable with God and with our neighbors. Healthy confession requires honesty. 
honest confession of the ways we've hurt ourselves and others, I really think is one of the keys to experience, experiencing this freedom and forgiveness, healing and wholeness that we've been talking about. To show you what it can look like, I want to wrap up this morning with my favorite scripture passage about confession. It's actually a psalm written by King David. Now, if you don't know much about David, he was this living juxtaposition. He was called a man after God's own heart, and yet he also committed terrible sins against himself and others. He is, though, like all of us, neither wholly good or wholly bad. He's human, broken and beautiful, sometimes lost, but always loved by God. Now, we don't know the occasion which prompted the writing of this particular psalm by David. Sometimes we do. Historical data, sometimes David outlines it. Sometimes other people who wrote the psalms talk about what brought the psalm about. We don't have that with this one. So we don't know the specific sins that he's confessing here. But I actually think that makes it more meaningful for all of us. Because regardless of whether we share the same sin struggles as David, we can all benefit I think, from the honesty and vulnerability of his confession here. And I think it serves as a model for us. Maybe not exactly in practice, although maybe so, but certainly in posture, the way that David is introspective and honest, vulnerable and real. But we can also glean hope from the confidence that David has in the goodness and faithfulness of God to provide not only forgiveness, but freedom for anyone who desires it to move us toward healing and wholeness if we'll be honest with ourselves and with others. So I'm going to read through this. You can follow it along. Words are going to be on the screen. Or you can close your eyes, think through it, whatever you'd like. This is Psalm 32. David said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, in whose spirit is no deceit. That's that honesty we've been talking about. Nothing held back. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. How many of you have experienced something like this when you're just keeping it in? You don't want to tell anybody else something you've done, something done to you. It's hard to be honest. But like David said, when we do that, when we keep it in, our bones waste away. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you as us, while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. There's nothing out of God's reach. He hears us. He's with us. You, God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Isn't that beautiful? I I read that this week. I know I'd read it before in seminary or something, but it's not like a really popular psalm. I thought, you know what? Just once a week for the next few weeks, I'm going to start my week with that psalm. Just be honest about kind of where I am as the week starts. Be honest with God, with my neighbors, my friends, 
about what that looks like, how we do it. I think it's such a beautiful picture of David being honest about his sin, confessing it to God, and trusting in the forgiveness and healing that God provides. So as we wrap up this morning, my challenge to each of us is this. Let's be honest about the things that we've done and continue to do to hurt ourselves and our neighbors. Let's tell the truth about the systems and structures that we participate in that prevent people from flourishing. Let's confess our sin and begin the process of experiencing healing and wholeness and fullness of life, this thing that God desires for us all. I don't think it's easy. It might take a little bit of time to kind of work this into your practices, but I think it can make all the difference. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for who you are, especially depicted in this Psalm of David, how beautiful David's confidence of who you are, what you've done, and what you'll continue to do. I'm so grateful that you meet us where we are, that there's not shame associated with bringing our struggles, our sins to you, that you are love, that you are the party for the prodigal, the welcome home like we sang about. I pray that in confidence and humility, we would be honest, we'd confess our sins to you, to others. Like Bell Hooks said, confession is good for the soul. Let's pray that we would step into that. You would continue to set us free from the things that prevent us from experiencing that healing, wholeness, and fullness of life. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.